I'm just going to read the first eight verses. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. And so we've been looking at Jude, and we've been looking at these root sins that he points at, and we're going to look at the fruit sins in verse 8. Today our focus is going to be on Jude verse 7. And I just wanted to read this to you, these three temptations that must be avoided while studying the letter of Jude for this little church family. While studying the letter of Jude, our church family must not look at the past to find these people who have previously crept in unnoticed and are now gone. Instead, we must self-examine our own hearts and our own fruit while studying the letter of Jude and preparing for new people to come into our church family. Second, while studying the letter of Jude, we must not think that it is for us to examine other local churches in our community at this time, but we, we must learn what the letter of Jude can teach our church family and how it should impact our church family as we move forward and grow in the Lord. Third, while studying the letter of Jude and because of our past experiences, our church family should not be so guarded towards new or visiting brothers and sisters that come into our local church that they feel unwelcomed and uninvited to be a part of this church family. Those are all temptations that can really just take Christ right out of our church. We can just, boom, drift right away from Jesus Christ if we let those temptations overtake us. So previously we looked at all these verses coming up to Jude 7 and Jude 3, we looked at the purpose of the letter and determined that every believer in the church is supposed to contend earnestly for the faith in their local church community and in the broader church community. Jude 4, we saw that the problem and danger for the church is that certain persons have crept in unnoticed who deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And I pointed out, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed, 
That's derogatory. These people have come in. They're imposters. They, they pretend. They pretend to be something they're not. An example, I just wrote this down as an example. We all know at least one person that is unreliable. Everybody has that friend or family member that is unreliable, right? It's not that you don't like them. It's not that you don't love them. They may even be a member of your own family or just a long-time best friend. But you've seen the way that person has been so irresponsible with their own life, and you think of that person and you say to yourself, I would never trust that person with my money. I wouldn't loan them my car, right? I wouldn't trust them with my children or anything of value to me because I've seen the way that they've abused all these things of value in their own lives. Do you know that person? Can you think of that person? Do they stand out? A person you just can't trust, but that's close to you. Right? Is that person in your life? Jude is not speaking about that person. He's not speaking about the person that you can look at their life and you've known them for a long time and you can say, I can't trust that person. He's saying people have come in. They've crept in unnoticed. These are the people you think, they're just like me. Jesus Christ is their Lord. They believe in the triune God. They love the doctrines. They love your statement of faith and your local church. And then they come in and they prove to be something they're not after they've already gained your trust. That's why so many people get hurt. That's why Jude is so worried about the local church that he's writing to. Jude says, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed, under the radar. They make themselves look like they're very trustworthy. And remember what I said, the verbal form here is derogatory, and it applies that these persons are outsiders and have hidden their true character and motives when coming into the church. In other words, these men and women were crafty like the serpent in Genesis 3.1, and they are pretending to be godly members of the Christian church. Some other words to describe these people would be wolves in sheep's clothing, deceivers, seducers, false brothers, and false teachers. And I've said already that I like the word imposters, which means one who imposes on others, a person who assumes a character for the purpose of deception, a deceiver under false character. That's a good description of who Jude's talking about. I just wrote down this one characteristic of these, these people today. These are people who come into the church and speak and act as if they are more holy than other Christians, by the grace of God, of course, and they always focus on what God has done in their lives, but they never see God working in others. They always see the sins of others around them, but they are blind to the fact that they sin in the same way. This is because they compare themselves to others instead of comparing themselves to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Master. Matthew 7, 
3 through 5, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do you pray that the Lord would show you the log in your own eye? So in Jude 5 through 17, we will see the primary and secondary sources that Jude uses to warn all those in the church community that those who do not come to faith in Jesus Christ and remain in the, in the faith in Jesus Christ will receive judgment and condemnation. Jude also points out the root sins and fruit sins of these false Christians, followed by their judgment and condemnation from our Lord and Master Jesus Christ. We've already looked at two of these verses, but... Jude will give us a detailed description of these false Christians by using examples from the Old Testament scriptures, verses 5 through 8, now, Jewish traditions and similitudes of nature and promise to help the church get a clear picture of who these imposters may be and how to identify them amongst God's elect. Jude's given us a great description. He doesn't give us names. We don't need names. Jude writes in patterns, mainly patterns of three. In 25 verses of Jude's letter, we see 11 patterns of three, one pattern of five, and one pattern of four. It's very obvious that Jude writes these patterns for a reason. He has a purpose for these patterns. So in verses five through seven, Jude uses Old Testament examples to point out the root sins and the judgment and condemnation followed from the Lord. And in verse 8, Jude will reverse the order of three and show the fruit sins of the false Christians that have crept in unnoticed. So in previous sermons, we've looked at in depth at these verses 5 and 6 with verse 8 attached to them. I'll read those. Jude 5. Now I want to remind you, though you know all things, that Jesus, having once saved a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And then I'll put... Verse 8 in there. Yet in the same way, these men blaspheme the glorious ones. Jude 6. And the angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And then verse 8. Yet in the same way, these men reject authority. And then today our focus is going to be on Jude verse 7 with part of verse 8. Jude 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, having indulged in the same way as these in gross sexual immorality and having gone after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same way these men defile the flesh. That's verse 8. So Jude 7 is the last pattern of three Old Testament examples which we're looking at. One man speaks of this pattern of three that he sees through 5 and 7 and then reversed in 8. And he said of the pattern of three in Jude verses 5 through 8, this seventh verse has the third example of the danger of defecting from the faith and ties in with the previous two examples 
The angels had the blessings of heaven. The Israelites had the blessings of the church. And Sodom had the blessings of the world. But when the angels committed apostasy, they were lost. They lost heaven. When the Israelites grumbled, they were shut out of Canaan. And the Sodomites, along with their fruitful soil and pleasant land, were destroyed. You see, heavenly mercies, church mercies, and the mercies of this world are all forfeited when people refuse God's grace. You lose it all. Doesn't matter which sphere you were in. This man also said, Nobody is allowed to sin, and no one are exempt from punishment. The law includes everyone the son, the servant, he who sits on the throne, and those who grind at the mill. No one has a license from heaven to sin. So now as we look at verse 7, I want to start by making one observation that is important when looking at this pattern of three in verses 5 through 8. Some translations don't read the same as the Greek rendering of the text. And if you read them incorrectly, you may think that Jude is saying that verses 5 through 7 are all dealing with the same sins, which is incorrect. When you start off here in verse 7, you see, I'll read it from, let's see, the NIV. The NIV says, for example, Jude 7a, In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. And when it says in a similar way, written in that form of English, it almost sounds like they're doing the same thing as the Israelites and the angels. KJV, for example, Jude 7a, Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh. So you could look at that and say, well, maybe they're talking about the Israelites and the angels, and they're all struggling with the same sin. And so if you do that, maybe you'll take that Genesis 6, 1 through 4 narrative like we talked about last week. But that's not the case. If you read it this way, that says that Sodom and Gomorrah sinned just like them, right? One man writes, these words in like manner in the original Greek, some refer not to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, but to the Israelites and angels of whom the apostle spake in the foregoing verse, as if he had intended that these cities about Sodom and Gomorrah sinned after the manner in which the Israelites and angels did. And their only reason is because the gender is changed in this word, revoke, which they say cannot be referred to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. But to those Israelites and angels of whom he spake before and who sinned, though not by body, bodily uncleanness, which Jude afterwards mentions, yet by spiritual whoredom and making defection from God. But I conceive with Beza, Calvin, and Estius upon the place that Jude intends that these cities about Sodom and Gomorrah sinned after the same manner with these great cities whose steps and examples they followed 
and therefore were involved in their punishment. We never find in Scripture that the Israelites sinned in following strange flesh. Nor can we either, according to the Scripture or reason, attribute this sin to angels. We don't see God charge the Israelites with the sin of homosexuality. And we don't see him charge the angels with that same sin. So we can't say in a similar way they've all sinned the same. We have to go with Jude's pattern of three. That's what I'm trying to explain. These are all separated, these sins. And we'll look at that sin here in just a little bit. So let's listen to it from the the LSB, which I'm using. Jude 7, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, having indulged in the same way as these in gross sexual immorality, and having gone after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So you see, just as these small cities around Sodom and Gomorrah indulged in the same way, this sin spread out and infected the small cities. That's what Jude is saying in this verse. He's not saying they sinned like the Israelites and the angels. No, their sin spread, and it was spreading through the land. And it spread to the small cities. So Jude starts with the places that were punished for their sins, Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them. Why does Jude refer to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them instead of the people? Normally, we think of people that sin. But he's referring to the cities. He's referring to the place. And this is because the sins of the people in these cities were so wicked that they defiled not only the people in these cities, but their wicked sins defiled the land that the cities were built upon as well. So then we see the Lord destroy both the people and the land. Genesis 19.25 And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. For the sins of these people, God not only judged the people and punished them, but he punished the land. He punished every living thing on that land. Everything was defiled because of the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Notice that this is obviously a greater sin than the unbelief of the Israelites that we looked at in Jude 5 when the Lord destroyed the people for blaspheming the glorious ones. He didn't destroy the land or the land that they were promised. He didn't destroy heaven when the angels sinned in heaven against God. But when Sodom and Gomorrah, the people of these cities, sinned, he destroyed everything. So I ask this self my question. Are you saying that God will destroy the land and the animals along with the people when the people sin wickedly against God? Could this happen again? Well, he's promised that he won't flood the earth. But he has not promised that he will not do what he did to Sodom and Gomorrah. So I'm saying yes. Zephaniah 1, 
Verses 2 through 3, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. He punishes the land and the animals for our sins. Hosea 4, 1 through 3, hear the word of the Lord. O children of Israel, for the Lord has controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds. The bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. we see even the land is cursed. Isn't that what God said to Adam? Cursed is the land. Cursed is everyone because of your sin, Adam. How do I know this is what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them? Well, the Lord mentions all four of their names in Deuteronomy chapter 29. It's a bit lengthy, but I'll read from 18 to 29 in Deuteronomy 29, if you have your Bible. Beware, lest there be among you a man or a woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and to serve gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against the man, and the curses written in this book will settle upon him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven." And the Lord will single him out from all the tribes of Israel for calamity in accordance with all the curses of the covenant written in this book of the law. And the next generation, your children who rise up after you, and the foreigner who comes far from a far land will say, when they see the afflictions of the land and the sickness with which the Lord has made it sick, the whole land burned out with brimstone and salt, nothing sown and nothing growing where no plant can sprout. An overflow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zebulun, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and wrath. All the nations will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land? What caused the heat of this great anger? Then people will say, it is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt and went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they had not known and whom they had not allotted to them. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as they are this day. 
The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. You see there, he mentioned all four cities. He mentioned the two small cities in Deuteronomy here. And he mentioned that he did this so that every generation will want to follow God's law. And so that every generation knows if they sin the way Sodom and Gomorrah does, their land may be burned so that every other generation can see their, their punishment for their sin. And he ends with, you should teach this to your children and to the next generation, to the next generation. Don't forget. And remember, we talked about biblical remembrance quite a while ago. Remember. 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 Like today when we take the Lord's Supper, remember what the Lord has done. Well, when you see Sodom and Gomorrah, remember what the Lord has done. Jude's reminding us of that. So let's move on here. And also the Lord shows us that no one will inhabit that land again. Jeremiah 49, 18. As when Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring cities were overthrown, says the Lord, no man shall dwell there and no man shall sojourn in her. There will be no reason for a person to go back. They won't be able to dwell there because nothing will grow on that land again. They will not be able to inhabit that land. But maybe you think all sins are created equal in the eyes of God. I ask myself the question, am I saying that some sins get a greater punishment than others? Wait, I thought all sins were the same. No, that's not true. We have to think biblically when it comes to this. I'll just mention a few texts here. We'll go through them real quick. They're Matthew 10. Fourteen and fifteen. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Are there sins that are worse than others? We better believe there are. Matthew eleven. 21 through 24. I'll start in 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Cherazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in your... If the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon... They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will be, you will be exalted to heaven. You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Matthew 
Matthew 18, 6. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. There are sins that are worse than others. And that's what Jude's starting with. He, he started in verse 5 with unbelief, and then he went to stubborn rebellion, and now he's on to sexual immorality. And our God does not change. So why didn't Jude give us the names of these surrounding cities? Of course, exactly, we we don't know why he didn't give us the names of those cities, but it does give us this idea that these sins started in the bigger cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and then spread from the big cities to the smaller cities around them. And I get this idea from Genesis 14, when the kings of these cities join in unity to go war against their common enemy. They get together because there's, there's something coming, and so they have to unite. And when they unite, all of a sudden, their sins unite as well, and it spreads. And I had scripture for that, but it, it got deleted today. So, move on. What do we know about the land that Sodom and Gomorrah were built upon? How was this land? Was it a good land, bad land? I mean, what caused these people to sin? Was it the land? Genesis thirteen ten through 12. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was because the Lord destroyed, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, that's the land God promised to the Israelites, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. And so we get an idea. This land was like the garden of the Lord. This land was like the land of Egypt. And we know by reading this Old Testament scripture that the land of Egypt, it was plentiful all these other smaller countries and nations were coming to Egypt because Egypt had an abundance of resources and food. They had to save them when there was a famine in the world. Everybody went to Egypt because they had an abundance. And the Bible is saying Sodom and Gomorrah were the same before the Lord destroyed them. We seem like we live in a land of abundance and resource. What do we know about the people in these cities? Jude doesn't mention their names. He doesn't mention the people. He mentioned them by cities. But what does the Bible say about these people? Genesis 13, 13. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Get a small description there. Ezekiel 16, 49 and 50. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Another description of the people. 
So if you read these two verses, the pro-homosexual says, look, Ezekiel 49, it was because they did not aid the poor and they were not hospitable. That's why they say that God punished Sodom and Gomorrah. They don't read into it, verse 50. They don't take into account Genesis 13. Yeah, they didn't feed the poor. They didn't aid the poor and needy. They did have an excess of food, and they weren't willing to share it. But God's talking about a greater sin than that. He's not talking about social justice. We'll see that as we move on. So back to Jude 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, having indulged in the same way as these in gross sexual immorality and having gone after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. And Jude starts right off with their sin here. Jude says, having indulged. The meaning here, meaning they gave themselves up to or yielded themselves without restraints or control. That's what the indulged here means. It has the idea that it, it's, this may have started out small. They gave themselves over to just a little sin, and then it became out of control, became uncontrollable. An example of this would just be starting a fire. You're out camping. You start the fire in the fire pit, and then a couple embers go outside and the whole forest is on fire. Everything's burned up. You had a good intention. You thought, oh, we'll just do this one little thing, and it blows up. Well, they thought, maybe we can get away with a little bit of sexual immorality. They just gave themselves over to a little bit, and then it blew up. So what are the two sins mentioned? Jude starts with gross sexual immorality. They've indulged in gross sexual immorality. The word gross here means excessive, frequent, and impure. Sexual immorality refers to fornication and adultery. So they've given themselves up. Now they have no self-control. It has taken over everything in their city. And what is it? Well, the smaller one here, fornication and adultery. Fornication means the incontinence or lewdness of unmarried persons, male and female. Also, the criminal conversation of a married man with an unmarried woman. This can just be flirting. Fornication could just be flirting with a woman that is not your wife. And that can grow. And that can take you over into a place you don't want to be. Adultery means a violation of the marriage bed, sexual intercourse of any unmarried man with a married woman, the unfaithfulness of any married person. Exodus 20.14 says, You shall not commit adultery. That's the seventh commandment. Westminster Larger Confession Answer to question 138, what are the duties of the seventh commandment? And the duties required in the seventh commandment are chastity and body, mind, affections, words, and behavior, and the preservation of it in ourselves and others. 
watchfulness over the eyes and all the senses, temperance, keeping a chaste company, modesty in apparel, marriage by those that have not the gift of continency, conjugal love and cohabitation, diligent labor in our callings, shunning all occasions of uncleanliness and resisting temptations thereunto. That's the duties of the seventh commandment. What does the Bible say about the sin of sexual immorality? Sexual immorality is a sin that leads you away from God. Hosea 4, 10 through 13. They shall eat, but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply, because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine and new wine, which take away the understanding. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them away, and they have left their God to play the whore. Just a little bit of sexual immorality. Maybe a little temptation for your eyes will lead you away from God. And he may not give you the grace to come back. You may be led away forever. Your last position may be worse than the first. Think about that when you're tempted. That temptation doesn't come from God. Sexual immorality is disgraceful and leads to self-destruction. Proverbs 6, 29 through 33. I'll read that to you. So I just said, sexual immorality is disgraceful and it leads to self-destruction. So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds of dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. Just that little temptation can overtake you and lead you away from God, and you will be destroyed by your own sin. Sexual immorality is a sin that defiles a person's body. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. It's a sin that goes directly against you. While everybody around you is affected, it actually hurts you the worst. That sin that tempted you, said you will be satisfied with this, actually destroys you. There's a lot we can learn here in Jude 7. 
we see the opposite of sexual immorality in 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 4. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And for that, I just say go back and listen to Greg's sermon again and see what the opposite of sexual immorality is, what God's will for you is sanctification, self-control. Where will the sexually immoral the sexually immoral people be in the end? For that we should go to the end. Revelation chapter 21. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. That's where you end up if you've not repented of your sexual immorality. So back to Jude 7. Let's look at this second sin. Jude 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, having indulged in the same way, as these in gross sexual immorality and having gone after strange flesh are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So second sin here we see, they've gone after strange flesh. And the word gone here means to depart from. So in this context, it means to depart from or leave the natural flesh and to go after the strange or unnatural flesh. So in the context of verse 7, we see these people started with sexual immorality. They started to indulge themselves with this, and then it led, and they moved on to strange flesh. So when they were not satisfied with just the sin of sexual immorality, and it just didn't satisfy, instead of turning from it to God's way, They went on to strange flesh, looking and wanting to be satisfied with their sin. Proverbs 2.19, none who go into her, nor do they regain the paths of life. So none that go into this, he's talking about a prostitute, he says, none that go into her come back. Once you go down that route, you're not coming back. And nor do they regain the paths of life. If you go into this sin, you should not expect to come back. You should not expect the grace of God ever again. One man said, when a stone runs down a hill, it does not come to a rest until it reaches the bottom. Remember in that sermon by Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the hands of the angry God. He says, you're on a slippery slope. You're sliding down the hill and you don't even know it. God's just barely holding you up. What if he lets go? It was your choice to go down that slippery slope. It was your desire, as James 4 tells us. 
started out with a temptation that didn't come from God, then turned into your desire, and then you acted out on that desire. So strange flesh. They've gone after strange flesh. Strange flesh is also known as perversion and is the act of unnatural relations, otherwise known otherwise known as sodomy, or today we call it homosexuality. The strange flesh is men going after men, lusting over men, and women doing the same with women. Genesis is focused on men, but Romans says women as well. The Bible has much to say about homosexuality, but let's just stick to the New Testament today for the sake of time. So Romans chapter 1, verse 26. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And if we would have read the whole account of Genesis 19, we would have seen these men would have done anything to get into Lot's house and to commit these acts against what they thought were men in Jude's house, or in Lot's house. They didn't think they were angels. They didn't know they were angels. And even after they were blinded, they were still trying to get into Jude's house to get to these men to commit this act. So we shouldn't let anybody tell us that this act of homosexuality is not a sin. We shouldn't let anybody tell us that God created them that way and they can stay that way and God will not deal with them. He's already dealt with them. They're already under his wrath, whether they say they're a Christian or not. First Timothy chapter one. Verse eight. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexual immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So we didn't have the law, but we practiced sexual immorality. We didn't have the law, but we practiced homosexuality. How could God judge us? Because it's for everyone, Paul says. Paul says they did know God. Paul says in their hearts and in their consciences they knew it was wrong. Paul says they, God gave them over to this sin because they desired this sin. It's part of their judgment. Let's move on here. These things are exhibited as an example and undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Undergoing the punishment of eternal fire here, we see the temporal punishment and the eternal punishment. So in Genesis 19, verse 1, 
verse 24, we see their temporal punishment. And what is that? Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. He wiped out the people, the land, everything living on it, every plant, every animal, forever on this earth. And that's just the temporal punishment. That's a scary thing. Our God is a great God. He's a powerful God. He's a righteous God. And then the eternal punishment. Mark 9.44 Jesus says you go to hell to the unquenchable fire. The eternal separation from God. The eternal wrath of God upon you always. No escape. And we get a, we get a picture of that when the rich man goes to hell. And he can see, he can remember his family. He can feel the pain. He can plead with Abraham, Father Abraham, send Lazarus back to my family. Abraham says, nope, they have the word of God. A man being resurrected, that can't save your family. They have the word of God, that can save them. If they'll listen. But he has a memory. You have a memory. You have a memory of the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. You have a memory of the gospel coming to you. Hopefully you receiving it, repenting and believing. But you will have a memory of forsaking that gospel as well for all eternity. So let's look at verse 8 with this just for a second. <clears throat> just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, having indulged in the same way as these in gross sexual immorality and having gone after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. And then we'll tack on verse 8. Yet in the same way, these men defile the flesh. So these men and women, because remember the men that have snuck in unnoticed, that, that's both pronouns. So that's men and women have come in, crept unnoticed, and it says they defile the flesh in the same way as Sodom and Gomorrah. They don't tell you that. Maybe they hide it. But then you see the way they live, and they defile the flesh. And maybe it starts small. And if we read our Bibles carefully, if we start looking at all this sin of sexual immorality, remember we've been looking at root sins and fruit sins. The root sin of all this is pride. And we saw that in Ezekiel 49. What was the first sin that God accused Sodom of Gomorrah of? It was pride. Pride always leads you in this direction. We're going to look at this more when we get to verse 8. We're going to look at scripture on this root sin of pride. But we've just seen what is the fruit. 
sexual immorality, and homosexuality. And how does God deal with that? Well, if you don't repent, if you don't believe in this gospel, it could be the temporal punishment now, or it can be eternal punishment forever, or it could be both in the sight of everybody around you. So pride is the root sin, and defiling the flesh is the fruit sin. And so for the, the people that are committing these sins, that are coming in the church and saying, we're just one of you. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we contend? We can read again Hebrews 10, 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If you want to stay in your sin and stay in the church, these are the verses for you. Is there hope for these people that have gone this way? What can we say to those in the church, as we'll look at in Jude verses 20 through 23, what do we say to the doubters, to the influencers, or the contaminators, or to the influenced or contaminated? What can we say to them? 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And we say to those people, if this is your sin, repent today. Today is the day of salvation. You can be saved from that sin, although I said it's a, it's a much more severe sin against God but you can be saved because Jesus blood there's nothing that can outweigh the blood of Jesus there's nothing that can stop the blood of Jesus from cleansing your sins 
I think we'll stop here with Colossians 1, 15 through 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all of creation under heaven. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you sent him to save a people from their sins, to never go back. Jesus, you saved a people. You say it's your grace that causes them to be born again. It's your grace that justifies them. It's your grace that adopts them. It's your grace that sanctifies them. It's your grace that will glorify them. And it's your grace that one day we will be with you, worshiping you. In Jesus' name, amen.